This is the How The Fuck podcast. Each week, we interview creative leaders and marketing professionals from around the world. From those interviews, we bring you unique advice that's based only in real practical experience that will help you to grow your business, get ahead in your professional life, and satisfy your hunger to learn new ideas. In this interview, we talk to Finn, the founder and CMO at Pastor Evangelist. Pastor Evangelist is a fresh pasta delivery and subscription service backed by the biggest names in food, including Ocado, M&S, Harrods and Deliveroo. Pastor Evangelist first got widespread attention after appearing on Dragon's Den. For non-British listeners, Dragon's Den is a TV show where you can pitch investors for funding, like Shark Tank in the US. After their appearance, they've since raised a £1.7 million Series A, and a £3.5 million Series B investment round. In this interview with Finn, we talked about their growth journey from day one in a small basement to today, a venture-backed startup with growth and customers all around the country. We also discussed the marketing strategy that delivered that growth and the goals that drive the company when it comes to content and PR. Finn's got a lot of experience in brand building, and I learned a lot in this interview about brand through Finn's examples. We discussed why Pastor Evangelist demonstrates the theatre of Pastor at their concession stand in Harrods, and how Finn, in his early career before Pastor Evangelist, drove a tank into central London to make journalists talk about the startup he worked at. Hey, so let's kick off with just your one-minute sales pitch for Pastor Evangelist. So Pastor Evangelist, we are a delivery company delivering all across the UK the freshest artisan pasta and sauces. And basically the premise is we want to bring the Italian restaurant to our customers' homes. So they receive, you know, lovely handmade pasta sauce. And then all they have to do is boil the pasta, heat up a sauce, combine. And then the idea is you have an almost sort of Michelin starred uh, pasta experience in your own home. And anyone can do it. It's super convenient. And and that's what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Is the brand aimed at a particular group of people? Is it the London market, UK, or is it globally? So when we started the business, we launched in London and actually a lot of people, a lot of people told us what you're doing is going to be only accessible to the Notting Hill community and uh, you're going to really struggle to get wider, wider uptake on this. But actually what we've seen is our customers are all over the country, 70% of customers actually outside of the capital. And when I look through our orders, I see addresses literally in places I've never heard of, you know, all the way up from the Scottish Highlands down to the Channel Islands, to sunny Brighton, to the west of Wales. So in terms of target demographic, if you like, you know, I think what we've realised is pasta is quite democratic. Everybody likes pasta. It's consumed very widely and by everyone. And, you know, as long as someone has a reason to consume our product, it can actually be for, for anyone. Looking at the data, we see... Some people, you know, have a weekly subscription and they get it delivered every single week. And there you can sense that it's more of a a weekly occurrence versus a treat. And then you have others, you know, who get it maybe every two or three months. And there you imagine it's, you know, more of a special occasion, which I think is lovely. So we we try and be there for those kind of different uh, different circumstances. Yeah, I can really see that. I mean, I can imagine it for those both of those uses for myself. I'd love to know a bit more about you and Pastor Evangelist. Um, were you there from the very beginning? Were so sadly, it wasn't my idea. It was the idea of my co-founder, Alessandro. 
who is from Italy. He's Italian, background in luxury, luxury goods, luxury smartphones, technology. I'm a Geordie for what it's worth. I come from a tech startup background and I basically just on day two. So it was quite serendipitous. I was working at Amazon uh, and I left Amazon quite quickly. It wasn't for me, great company, but I like smaller enterprises where I can really get stuck in. And as it happened, Alessandro and Chris, our other co-founder, were, were basically setting up the business in, <laughs> in, in somebody's basement in a room with no internet and no light. So that was my first day in the office, if you like. I walked into that. And then it's been a journey between the three of us ever since, building, growing, developing, trying, all the fun, all the, all the good moments, all the bad moments. Could you talk us through that journey from, you know, you and Alessandro and Chris in that basement up until the where you started to see the company actually take off? Yeah, sure. I mean, the first one that I really remember, I joined the business, as I say, on day two, which was November 2017. And at that time, as I say, we were just delivering in London, you know, to quite a, quite a small number of people, as you can imagine. And my priority was to open it up nationwide because, of course, if you, if you can switch on, if you increase, increase the size of your market overnight from 10, 12 million people to 65, 67 million people, uh, your market's six times bigger. And the pool of people you're advertising or marketing to is also bigger uh, which means it's more efficient and cheaper to advertise more widely. So to answer your question, the first big sort of wow moment was when we switched on nationwide, i.e. we started delivering all over the country. There we saw an immediate uplift. And that was January 2018. That was the very first one where things started to look interesting. And that around the same time was also, uh, we launched Pasta Subscriptions. So prior to that, our website was more like uh, was more like a menu in a restaurant where you would order, you know, one, two, three items, but there was no expectation that you would come back to the restaurant a week later, two weeks later. So early 2018, we also um, innovated the pasta subscription, which had a you know a huge knock-on effect in terms of retention, people coming back for more. So those were the two very early ones, I would say. Perfect. That's super interesting. We're going to, we're going to dive a bit deeper into that and the growth figures a little bit later on. So just starting with your background. So you work for Amazon as a, you know, kind of in-house marketing consultant, and then you've also worked for um, a German startup incubated by Rocket Internet. What in your, I mean, has there been a lot in your background that you've put to a lot of use in Pastor Evangelist? Absolutely. So much of it is transferable. I mean, um, the tech startup I was at was, was a, laundry, a laundry startup and it had the kind of hackneyed name. The Uber for laundry is, is what we were doing. Yeah. Um, I, you book a slot on an app. We came, picked up your clothes, washed them, uh, laundered them, dry cleaned them and returned them to the customers. It was kind of positioned at a, you know, a very London and city centric audience. All online marketing focus, very, very much data driven decision making. Uh, these are all things we've tried to, well, I've tried to uh, establish a pastor evangelist and marketing since, since day one. That's really interesting. I can definitely see a lot of overlap between between the two in terms of subscription, kind of audience side, e-commerce, online, that kind of thing. Um, and I've actually used Laundrap, which I guess is a competitor to the one that you that you worked for. 
So one thing I think is a big question, which is one very interesting part of the pastor evangelist journey, is that you appeared on Dragon's Den. Um, could you tell us about that story and the experience and what effect it had for you in terms of growth? I mean, so on the question of kind of what was the impact or what was the before and after, Dragon's Den, we, it was broadcast in August 2018. Gosh, almost two years ago. And I think overnight, the business more or less doubled, doubled or trebled. So that gives you a sense of how impactful it was. I, it was huge. It was a, a massive deluge of orders, a very good problem to have. A little bit overwhelming at the time, but what an amazing experience. And I mean, what, what was it like? It's not every day you get to go on telly, let alone into the Dragon's Den. For me, for me, it was great fun. They tore us apart, which frankly, you know, I think some, I think some people go in and kind of cry or break down and some people go in, you know, with a bit of a sense of humour about it. And I knew, I knew they were going to be unpleasant. I, I expected it. And they did. They did them. They did themselves justice. They were ferocious. But yeah, I mean, what actually what you see on TV is exactly what it's like. There's no, you know, special effects or there's no secret edits or cuts. Or, you know, it is what you see is what you get. And the only difference is the Dragon's Den. Um, when you're in there, it's more like for an hour, and then they cut it down, obviously, into maybe a five, six, seven, ten-minute max pitch. Uh, which is indeed what they did for us with, with the best part of TV. But, um, which are the bits where they grill you really hard, are they? Exactly. And where they come out with their uh, little quips and eccentric uh, ways of uh, deriding your business. But, you know, we weren't, we didn't really go in expecting to get it. You know, we, we did our best. They didn't like it. One of them said we were past the la disaster. Um, <laughs> You know, two years on, actually, because we, we filmed it two years ago in, in May 2018. Two years on, we're here. Our, you know, annual run rate revenues, for what it's worth, must be maybe about 20 times higher than they were when we went on Dragon's Den. So, you know, I wouldn't like to be, to be unpleasant, but we're certainly vindicated, I think, in, in what we're doing and trying to achieve. It's a fascinating story. Out of interest, were you going in there knowing this was going to be an amazing PR opportunity or were you actually trying to fundraise? I mean, you know, obviously you're more than aware that it's going to to be a good boost for the business, especially if you're a small business. Of course, it was on our mind. You know, you, you do go in genuinely wanting it to go well. But, but as you point out, if it doesn't go well, there is that silver lining. So for us, even though we got absolutely roasted, and of, of course, it was a little bit embarrassing, <laughs> a bit embarrassing when your family and friends and, and the rest of, you know, the business community watch, watch you on national television being, being called a disaster and delusional and so on. But yeah. ab absolutely, the silver lining is the business uplift. And for us, it, it was therefore worth it. What was it that they thought was a disaster? Because obviously it did end up going well. Uh, you've raised two rounds of investment since. Uh, so what was it? Yes. Um, so, so I mean... I think, I think there were two things. One is the amount of capital we asked, asked from them, which if my memory serves was a 70K. Normally they tend to make kind of smaller investments than that, more 20, 30, 10, et cetera. So right. already on a, on a back, back foot with them, if you like, by asking uh, 
for that larger amount. And secondly, they, you know, the amount of our business for stake that we were offering in return for that 70K led to a proposed valuation that they found <laughs> disagreeable. And that's where they went on the call as delusional and so on. In essence, you know, the, what I took away from it that I really liked was they really liked the product, actually. They all commented the pasta tastes great, it looked great, it sounded great. Uh, the product was solid. They just frankly didn't agree with the valuation at the time. And fair enough, you know, we were recording in May 2018. We only really seriously started growing the business, you know, a few months beforehand. So, so it, it's fair enough. We were an, an untested, uh, you know, proposition. From what I've watched, they're definitely savvy investors. They will obviously charge a premium because of who they are being famous and the kind of reach they can give you because of that. So yeah, I can, I mean, I can see that and I can see why they think they would get a better deal um, than you're proposing, perhaps. If there's one way I look at it as well, you know, Gusto um, went on Dragon's Den. Gusto is actually, I, I believe, uh, maybe I'm misspeaking, but as of today, I believe they've just closed a round of 25 million pounds having raised something like a hundred million pounds of capital into their business to date. And, you know, they've grown exponentially. I, I don't know what their, you know, metrics and figures look like further down the P&L, but pure growth terms, it's, it's eminent. They've done exceptionally well. They've created a big brand, a real brand that's delivering to hundreds of thousands of British homes, I presume, on a monthly basis. So, you know, we're I'm not saying the dragons made a mistake with us. It's, you know, a bit cocky to say, but as I say, I, I think we've at least vindicated for ourselves that we, we probably did deserve the valuation that we we were pitching for. Certainly our valuation is much higher now, and that's live. So we talked very briefly there about brand. What is your brand strategy? Um, and what do you think are the key things we can do as, uh, you know, startup people, startup marketers to build our brand? So... It's interesting because the second question you asked almost ties in the first one. The first one was kind of what is your brand mission, I think? What what are you trying to achieve as a brand? What what would be the end goal? And for us, that has always, always, always been to become the authority in fresh pasta. It sounds a little bit cheesy, it sounds a bit hackneyed, but actually, if when you're starting a business, you sit down on day one and decide what does success look look like to us, not necessarily in a commercial or financial way, but spiritually, what are we, what are we trying to do here? What's, what is the mission? And if you can distill that down into a sentence and keep that sentence in front of you and at the forefront of your mind every single day in what you're doing, it can really help focus the mind, focus your activities. You know, I often ask myself, is this, is this furthering our cause? to become the authority in fresh pasta. You know, do we want to start doing, people always say to me, Finn, why don't you do a range of dry pasta for people who want dry pasta? And then I think to myself, is this in line with what, we, what we're trying to do, which is to do a renaissance in fresh pasta? No. Do we want to start doing a pasta pizza business? No. And there's lots of different things that will come up over time that could be you know, commercially advantageous, you could add products X, Y, and Z, but actually if they're not in line with your 
core brand goal and what you're trying to get to is best not to be distracted because the more distracted you are, the more diluted, you know, the outward appearances as well. It's for me, at least has been really important for us to have that laser focus and really squarely go after what, what we set out to go after on day one. I love that. And I totally agree. Having a very, having that kind of clarity behind your brand mission can be so important for not only external communications, but internal decision-making and keeping your team completely aligned. Out of interest, how much does it influence your communication strategy? So your, your bigger brand mission is to become the authority in fresh pasta. Is that something that you put out there? You know, do you say we want to be this or is that just something that influences your communications? I mean, we're upfront about it. It's, it's probably not something we kind of communicate as a, as a marketing piece, for example, but certainly internally when we're pitching the business or talking to investors or, you know, if someone asks me, as you have on this call, what, what are you trying to do? What are you, what's the end goal? That's always the response. And, you know, whenever we're, let's say, a, a, someone new joins Pastor Evangelist, a new employee, the first thing we do with them is, you know, spend a good hour taking them through our company deck, our pitch deck, if you like, and really honing in on that message to become the authority in Fresh Pasta. So that everyone's working to the same macro end goal and everyone has that same sort of the french term raison d'etre or reason reason for being and everyone's aligned on that but we don't we don't necessarily say you know in our facebook ads we want to be the authority in fresh pasta we would use something softer something more like you know bringing the fresh pasta renaissance to your home Mm -hmm. uh, if that makes sense that's an excellent answer and I completely agree. I can see how it would really align everyone who works in your company, like in their mission and, and the way they act and, and work. I have to tell you a story, actually, completely unrelated to this interview. I was looking to make fresh pasta and the first video that came up was Pasta Evangelist on Google um, with a, an amazing Italian woman who was, who was teaching us how to make fresh pasta. It was brilliant. So I'm really wondering, do you have people in-house doing this kind of thing? Like, how did you decide to make that kind of investment? We do, yeah. So we have a team of uh, what you call in Italian sfogline, which essentially is a a pasta chef. It's someone who makes pastas. A sfoglina, it's a feminine word. So you also have a pastai, which is the plural of pasta chef. But Roberta is an old school, traditional, she won't mind me saying that, a traditional sfoglina insofar as she actually grew up in Puglia, which is in, in the south of Italy. It's known to be a, a poorer part of the country and very traditional. Mm-hmm. And she grew up with her grandma, her nonna, learning to make all these different pasta shapes. <laughs> and she, she, said, she says quite openly, you know, throughout my teenage years, I was confined to the kitchen. I, was, <laughs> I was, had to learn how to make all these different shapes. And, you know, now she, she really is, to go back to the term I was talking about before, she's an authority on pasta. And what I love about Roberta is she speaks the language of pasta and tells the story of pasta and, in, you know, in all its permutations in such a vivid and wonderful way. So Roberta leads all of our um, events. So at Pastry Vanners, we do several events a week where, you know, with the general public, we teach them how to make pasta. So Roberta defronts them. As you said, we also do videos so people can uh, go to YouTube online, search Pastor Evangelists, 
find a guide how to make ravioli, orecchietti, trofie, papadelle, all sorts of different shapes. And I think it brings it to life a little bit more, having a real Italian pasta chef showing you, showing you the ropes in a homely, accessible way. I mean, definitely, yeah. It's definitely very authentic. And yeah. as you said, <laughs> I thought what I, I was even showing my mum, I was like, how great is this? Like, so, oh. so Italian. And so like, this is, this is who I want teaching me how to make Absolutely. pasta. What? I'd love to know more about that. From a marketing perspective, what's your strategy behind the content that you put out, uh, you know, short term and long term? And what are you trying to achieve with this? So I think there's kind of the short term objectives, the long and the medium and the, and the long. It's a bit, uh, bit business speak to say that or, or whatever, but, it, but it's true. I think in the short term, our marketing plan always re revolves around the month in question. So every month we're trying to grow the business. This is what it's like with the reality of uh, being in a, a, gr a fast, fast paced growth startup. We want to share every single month, growth, month on month growth. So we're always trying to beat the previous month. So that's one part. What we're doing in our content, yes, it has that short term objective. We want to use content to drive sales in the short term. But then if you move to the longer term side of it, it's more about building the brand. So if you take an example of a uh, Roberta's pasta making video where she shows you how to ravi make ravioli, you know, we might use that video tomorrow to help sell pasta making kits. Yeah. We sell pasta making kits where we have all the tools that you need to make pasta. So we may put that video in an, in an ad, for example, say, come along, make some pasta with Roberta, buy your kit today, limited time offer. It's a very short term use of the content, but longer term by simply having all of that content, and making more content over time and making this content rank on Google, like you mentioned, you'd found it on Google. Yeah. This is a longer term thing. And this is all about us actually delivering our long term objective, which, which of course is to be the authority in fresh pasta. So you're using content for a sort of dual aim of short term growth and long term brand building, um, which I think is uh, you know, really smart. I'd also like to know a bit more about your out-of-home marketing, because I know you do pop-up stands, you're in Harrods, you do catering. Um, can you tell me a bit more about that from a marketing perspective? Are those things all part of your brand building strategy? It's a good question. The honest truth is everything we do more or less fulfills the short-term objective that I mentioned around the revenue growth and growth. And the second one about brand, you kind of want everything you do to tick both boxes. Not only is it bringing you sales, but it's bringing you positive brand development, which is a little bit of a, a nebulous or unquantifiable concept, you know, brand development. What does it mean? But to give you an example, you, you mentioned Harrods. What we have in Harrods is, is not necessarily a pop-up. It's actually a permanent concession. So if you go to the Harrods food hall, you'll find a, a mini pastry evangelist store, if you like, a concession corner where we have kind of a deli service and you can buy our fresh pasta there and then. You talk to our, you know, experienced pasta chefs behind the counter who can advise you and so on. We always called Harrods from day one. We wanted to have in Harrods the theatre of pasta. So not only were we selling pasta, we were also making pasta there. 
you know, every single day there's a tutorial on Harrods and people can go and they can watch and they can take videos and speak to the chefs. So it's quite an interactive thing. And I think Harrods there, for example, is a great microcosmic example of what I'm saying about, yes, doing things to generate sales, such as selling product in Harrods, but also doing things that elevate your brand and take it to the next level, such as appearing in, you know, being in, being situated in one of the world's best, if not the best department stores, mm-hmm. gives your brand an immediate uh, boost. It adds credibility, it adds gravitas, and also doing the, the theatre of pasta in there. We don't make any money from doing kind of pasta shows for the general public in there, but it's all part of evangelising what real pasta is about, which of course goes yeah, indivisibly with our brand mission to become the fresh, fresh pasta authority. Yeah, it's amazing because there must be such a strong association with being in such a great location and just having people pass you by and getting involved with the brand um, and having, you know, being able to capture people's attention in a fun way. And actually, you know, for us, that's one of the reasons Harrods was such an attractive opportunity for us because we launched in Harrods in late 2018. We were still a very small business, but actually we became the pasta brand in Harrods. So let's imagine you're marketing your business to someone in in Aberdeen you who has never seen your brand before they have no idea what pastor evangelist is but they come across one of your facebook ads now they click through through to your website and visit and then they see ah this is a pastor brand that is stocked in harrods immediately for that person who otherwise doesn't know you it helps to add a little bit of trust it helps to foster that credibility because if there's 67 million people in this country i would guesstimate at least 95% of them know what Harrods is and have a you know a positive sense of quality from Harrods so we kind of linked ourselves to that which helped helped us as I say to deliver that trust back in the early days and still now and also foster you know an expectation uh, of quality from our customers which, which of course is what we strive to deliver. Definitely and I can see that's a strategy that's really worked for you is attaching the credibility of your brand to huge partnerships, which you've got some really amazing ones. And I'd like to talk about that from a PR perspective as well, actually, because you've obviously been in all of the the big UK publications. Is that something you're doing in-house or are you working with an external agency? So from day one until day 700-ish, we didn't have a PR agency. We've been working with a PR agency who I'm happy to give a shout out to because they're fabulous. An agency called Bacchus, which is based in London. Very, very Bacchus PR. Very experienced uh, food food and hospitality uh, PR business. And very, very seasoned, experienced uh, professionals. We've been working with them for about uh, two months. We've had a huge amount of uh, PR in recent days. You know, partly partly down to their expertise, partly down to the fact that COVID nineteen has has you know seen a massive interest in in what home delivery services are doing. Um, but prior to that, actually, we didn't use an agency, and the reason we didn't use an agency is, fortunately, Pastor Evangelist is quite a natural PR story. What we're doing is quite different. It's quite quirky. It's quite Italian. For sure, it's food 
deliciousness related. So we found it quite easy to quite easy to get coverage, frankly, because nine times out of ten, if, if you you know have a friendly chat with a journalist and offer them some pasta, they're very likely to <laughs> trust me. Speaking from experience, they're very likely to take you up on the offer to try the pasta, and then of course you know if they like it. Uh, and if you're a little bit lucky and a little bit persistent as well, there's a, there's a chance that they might cover you. So we didn't see it as necessary because we, we were actually quite pleased with how we were doing and we were getting also a lot of inbound PR, i.e. Uh, coverage that we didn't go looking for. But for sure, now that we've professionalized our PR efforts with, uh, with backers, it's, it's become a, even stronger. And I bet a little bit less work for you. Would that be fair to say? And it isn't. <laughs> it is insofar as not. Yeah, I mean, I'm not compiling lists of journalists or thinking who am I going to reach out to and so on. But on the other hand, PR has now become a permanent fixture of, of Pastor Evangelist, and we're not doing it on a occasional basis where we've got some time to think about PR. It's now very much a weekly. What is the strategy? Chatting with our agency, coming up with constant plans, mm-hmm. always touch so it's kind of become an always on activity now. So in a way it does take a bit more time, but actually the results were getting so disproportionately better and more frequent that it's uh, undoubtedly worth it. That's so nice to have that help. I mean, I was complaining about PR this week with one of my friends who works in PR. She's been amazing helping me at my startup, you know, finding out hooks that work for journalists and giving me advice on how to approach people. Uh, and that kind of thing but it's just so difficult because the software that we're making is just not sexy and not really interesting but on the other hand one of our other friends um he started doing pr and he's in a food company as well and it's a social enterprise um about intergenerational cooking called diaspora which i recommend anyone go and check out but literally on his first attempt at doing pr for the business they got on Sky TV, they got in Metro, which is, you know, a widely circulated magazine in the UK. Um, so it's just crazy how much an interesting product can really help you out. I can completely, completely feel your pain there when I saw the laundry startup. Believe you me, trying to get coverage about a, a laundry company was nigh on impossible. Indeed, it was like getting blood from a stone. So I really feel pain. My kind of quick advice is, if, you, if you're working with a, a dry-ish product, i.e. one that doesn't naturally, you know, induce PR, try and find a really, really clever, cheeky way to, to slot yourself into something bigger. I mean, for example, at the, at the, this is, gosh, four years ago, I did a campaign for the um, laundry company where I said, laundry's a menace. People hate doing laundry you know, why don't we liberate people from laundry, this concept of liberating Londoners from their laundry. Now, what can liberating a city look like? And I thought, you know, I'm a bit of a history geek. I love history. I was thinking in the Second World War, what happened when a city was liberated? Well, imagery, videos of tanks rolling through the city to liberate the population. So I thought, let's get a bloody tank. So I managed to get my hands on a tank and we actually drove a military tank through London, across Westminster Bridge, through the city, which, of course, was where all the bankers and our dry cleaning uh, consumers were. And we literally drove a branded tank through, through London several Liberate. miles. We, had loud, exactly, we were liberating people from their laundry. We had 
performance artists running running along with the tank. We had uh, people, you know, outside every tube station at rush hour. I think if you can do something really integrated and a bit different, you know, that's that's the way you kind of get cut through when uh, when you're a drier, if you like, uh, <laughs> proposition for the music <laughs> to create something exciting for them. Yeah, I like that. Like, just add something exciting on top of it. <laughs> Make it creative. Plus, plus, you get photos for life, Ben. I've got photos of me sitting on a tank outside Westminster. I love it. I'm hang on to that on my deathbed. Yeah, that is amazing. We can get creative and do it. Absolutely. I tell you, actually, um, Ben, what was one of my favourite ones that I saw about six or seven months ago? I, and this was a this was a real growth hacking exercise. No budget at all. A guy who had launched, I can't remember what the app was, but he'd done a new dating app and he had taken a whiteboard, attached it to, you know, with chains to a fence at Finsbury Square in London, in central London. And he'd written something like, you cheating, beatard, you effing this. I can't believe you've done this to me. By the way, everyone, here's his Instagram handle. Go and tell him what a, you know, he is. Wow, I can't believe this is a scandalous. So, of course, the first thing I did was take a photo of it to share on my own social media, which helped it viralize. Mm -hmm. Second, I looked up this unfortunate person who ostensibly had been called out for their infidelity. (laughs) And the clever person, it was actually the guy who had started the app. And he wrote in the profile, not a cheater promise so sorry so sorry to distract you just wanted to bring your attention to this amazing new and i thought that was so clever because his only expenditure was a tenor on the whiteboard and having a little bit of nerve to go and uh, go and take a chance to attach that to the fence in public but i thought that was a fantastic campaign i think if you can capture people's sense of humor or imagination you've done half of the job like what that guy did was a bit cheeky and British people, I think, the British public like things that are cheeky and have a sense of humour to them. So I think if you do that, you're away. It's got quite a bit of character to it as well, hasn't it? Well, thank you, Finn. It's been brilliant talking to you about brand and PR. Um, and very good luck to you and the team at Pastor Evangelist. It's been great talking to you. My pleasure, likewise. Glad to contribute. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Let's stay in contact. Cool. Sounds good. Thanks a lot. Cheers, Finn. Bye. That's it from us today. Um, As always, please come and follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, uh, sign up to the mailing list. We summarize all of the insight we get from these interviews every week uh, in an email and send it out. If you're interested in learning more about brand, uh, this interview relates well to the interview with Iona Ratcliffe, uh, CMO at Ocean Bottle, who um, talks us through her brand building activity. It also relates well to the content strategists that we've got interviewed, Chris and Gaetano, for example. So go and check those out. You can listen to them or read them and have a great week. Cheers.